My sermon text this morning comes from Genesis 3. I'll be reading all 24 verses of Genesis 3. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of the life. Let's pray together. Father, as is our custom every Sunday, we come reading from the Old Testament and the New, and we thank you that we do not live in darkness, but that you have shown the fullness of your light upon us. For in the past, you spoke by the prophets to our forefathers at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, you have spoken by your Son. So we thank you, Father, that we can read all of Scripture through the lens of Christ, for he is the yes and amen of all the promises. 
We thank you for these ancient promises, these familiar ones. We pray that you would now open up your word and give us a fresh sight of what is here. May we take it into our minds and our hearts. May it be expressed in our lives as well. Do this to your glory and for the name and sake of Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I have someone who um, I was once close to, I'm not going to say who it is, and you don't know them anyway, but who really wrecked his life because of sin. It was a, it was a sexual sin. Actually, I don't think it was uh, the sin itself that derailed him, but it was really uh, his reaction to his sin. He had lived a double life for a long time. He um, before he got married, he indulged in pornography, and that became an addiction. I don't have a problem calling that an addiction. It's still sin, but it can certainly become an addiction as any sin can. He married a good Christian woman, but the visual infidelity that he engaged in eventually became in-person infidelity, and he had a number of affairs, and as you might guess, he was eventually caught, and because of that, he, he lost his Marriage. He lost his wife, and he also became estranged from his children. But again, as, as, as bad as his sin was, his reactions to sin were even worse. Not that they weren't understandable in some sense. As you might imagine, he hid his indiscretions, his infidelities. Uh, even after it became evident what he was doing, he continued to try and cover it up. He also displayed a, a very bitter attitude towards others. He blamed his wife. He blamed his circumstances, blamed anything but himself. He would not take ownership for his deeds. And finally, in the end, very sadly, he just adopted a new lifestyle. Sin became a lifestyle. He, he got used to it. You know, I imagine that in his mind, he felt like he was cutting himself some slack that maybe even he was being gracious to himself. And again, I think that we can all relate to this, even if we're not caught up in that type of sin. Because it's our natural tendency to hide our sin, to cover it up, to justify ourselves by blaming or cursing others. And in the end, but for the grace of God, I think any of us has the capacity to get to the point where we accept sin as a new normal in our lives. Those are our reactions because they were Adam's reaction, and we are of Adam. We may be found in Christ, but we're still of Adam, aren't we? But God, who is rich in mercy, he does meet each one of these reactions with a real remedy. His remedies, of course, are, are typically more drastic. They may feel more painful. But what I want us to see this morning is that his remedies are more glorious and even more important they are more gracious. They're more gracious than our reactions to sin. God's remedy for sin is more gracious than our reaction to sin. That's what we're going to focus upon this morning. There are a lot of different angles to this text, but that's what we're going to look at. You know, this morning I'm, I'm launching a new series in the book of Genesis. Uh, I'll be preaching next week as well and then on for several weeks and back. But we'll, it's a book we can come back to, but it's a, a, it's a series entitled the Gospel According to Genesis, which probably would be a good title for any book of the Bible, for all of Scripture testifies to Christ. 
But in the weeks to come, we're going to be looking at some familiar passages, maybe some that are less familiar, that display the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. But this morning, we find ourselves looking at that proto-evangelium, that first gospel, that famous word that was spoken in, in verse 15 of chapter 3, the promise of Christ. And indeed, this is the promise of Christ, that he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. But there's even more here in the fullness of this chapter. Again, this is a picture of man's sinful reaction to sin, but of God producing a more gracious remedy at every turn. Well, I've already summarized some of our natural reactions to sin, but let's spotlight each one of them. Let's take some time to look at each one of them one by one so that we can also consider God's remedies. First then is that we hide in our sin. We, we hide our sin and we cover it up. Those are really just two sides of the same coin. Notice in verse 7 that immediately after Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, they, they covered up, didn't they? They were naked, but God had made them innocent in their nakedness. But now that they're, they've sinned, they're ashamed, and so they sew fig leaves together to make loincloths. Not only this, but also continuing in verse 8, when they hear the Lord God coming to find them, they hide in the garden. So they hide and they cover up. And again, I, say, I think we see this reaction in ourselves. It's nothing new. It's as old as the hills. But how then does God remedy these poor reactions to sin? Well, first, regarding hiding, God comes looking for them, doesn't he? Verse 8 announces that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The Lord even comes calling for man. Where are you? You know, what an interesting picture this is in chapter 3. The transcendent God of the universe, who we've just read from, verse, from chapters 1 and 2, has created the universe out of the word of his mouth. He now deigns to walk with man in a garden in the cool of the day. <laughs> cool of the day sounds like a nice idea, doesn't it? It's, it sounds very pleasant. It is meant to give us a pleasant picture. God comes to walk and talk and commune with mankind whom he has made in his image. The truly amazing thing is that God has this kind of, of personal and intimate presence and fellowship with his creation. Now, I'll be perfectly honest. I don't know exactly what to make of this theophany, this appearing of God. It's not the only one that we find in the book of Genesis. I don't want to assert something that erases the mystery of God appearing to man or presses the bounds of orthodoxy, but this does appear to be an early picture of God tabernacling with man, doesn't it? And this is where the gospel always begins for us. It's God's condescension to us. It's his coming. It's his advent. It's his appearing, his epiphany, even his incarnation, his coming in the flesh. God took on flesh in order to pursue us. And he pursues us in our sin. This text suggests that for however long it lasted, God was communing with a sinless Adam. But even after sin, God comes looking for the man in order to redeem him. To what depths will our God condescend to us? Well, Paul says that God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful man in order to save man. 
at the very least, we would have to say that this is a picture of God, uh, that, that this picture of God walking with man, that it really whispers what is to come with the incarnation of the Son of God. God does not leave us in our sin. He pursues us personally. Not only this, but whereas man had attempted to cover up his nakedness with this pathetic makeshift loincloth of leaves, God makes for Adam and Eve substantial garments, garments of skin for their covering. The word for garment here in verse 21, it's the same word that we find in Genesis 37 where Jacob makes for his son Joseph a a coat, right? A beautiful coat of many colors. Why? Because he loved his son. So this this is a full covering. It's more like a tunic. It's also the same word that's used in Exodus 28 to describe one of the holy priestly garments that were fashioned for the high priest to wear in their service to God. Again, this was grace on the part of God to clothe Adam and Eve's nakedness. And this is really, I think we would have to say, this is the first picture of vicarious sacrifice. Remember, these were garments of skin, so God had to slaughter animals in order to make them for Adam and Eve. These skins pointed to a system of animal sacrifices that would later be more fully prescribed under the law, but of course they ultimately point to Christ, who, as the Lamb of God, serves as the ultimate, true, and satisfying sacrifice atonement for our sins. Which I think is why Paul is able to encourage the Galatians to put on Christ, to literally, like, wear Christ. He says that as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. This is the language of being clothed in Christ. It's why Isaiah, looking forward to salvation, was able to revel in in what he knew God would accomplish through his servant. He said, "I, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. It's also why in the book of Revelation, in in John's revelation to the churches, we're given a picture of a multitude from every nation who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. And again, at the end of that book, we're given a picture of the bride who's been given what? In preparation for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Fine linen, right? She's clothed herself with fine linen, bright and pure. It's even why I'm wearing a robe this morning. This is not some vestige of high church of keeping up appearances or some fashion statement, right? Honestly, I think I look better in black, but that's the robe of the scholars. No, throughout scripture, a robe of fine linen, a a white robe is how the priests and even the saints were dressed. This is how Christ has clothed all of us, myself included. Really, I have no business up here representing Christ to you through his word except for the righteousness of Christ that's mine by faith. Hiding from our sin, we, I understand it may feel therapeutic in the here and now, right? But God knows our sin, and we cannot hide from him. He knows our sin, and he, he pursues us despite our sin. So let's not hide from the one who pursues us. He pursues us by his grace in order to cleanse us and clothe us. Likewise, covering up our sin, it may make us feel safe and secure for the moment, but it's really no covering at all, is it? 
Let's instead confess our sins to God. And is, is appropriate, let us confess our sins to one another so that we may be healed. And in doing so, let us put on Christ. We hide and cover up our sin. But then also, in addition to hiding and covering up, we justify, <clears throat> we justify ourselves by blaming others. I think this is evident in our passage. In verse 11, when the Lord asks Adam, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Adam blames Eve. Now the woman you gave me, actually in the process, he blames God too, doesn't he? Now the woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. You know, that's an interesting deflection for a couple of reasons. First, God issued the command to Adam in Genesis 2 before Eve was even created. Therefore, Adam would have been responsible to communicate this commandment to Eve. Not only that, but in verse 6 of this chapter, the serpent is tempting Eve right there in front of Adam. We know this because it says that when Eve ate, she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Wasn't Adam supposed to be a keeper, a keeper of the garden, a keeper of his wife, a protector of sorts? Shouldn't he have said something? Yes, he should have. But he became complicit, and he sinned. Of course, Eve likewise blamed some, someone else, right? She said, the devil made me do it. It was the serpent. The serpent deceived me. It's our natural inclination to try and justify ourselves by blaming others and really cursing them for our sin. But you know God's remedy? While more drastic, is ultimately more significant. And actually, and I honestly believe this is true, it's, it's more gracious than our reaction. God condemns sin in sinful man in order to justify us. Let's look at the first half of that. God condemns sin and sinful man. Now, how is that more gracious, right? Well, first, let's notice that God does not curse man exactly the way he cursed the serpent, right? He directly cursed the serpent. In verse 14, he unequivocally says, cursed are you above all livestock. But with Adam and Eve, he cursed their dominion. Remember, God had created Adam and Eve in his image for a purpose. He told them to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it, and to exercise dominion, to rule over every living creature. But now he frustrates those mandates, doesn't he? He frustrates their dominion. Working the ground is no longer going to be a fruitful enterprise for Adam. Instead, his work, and work is always a good thing, right? It was for Adam, but now his work has become toil. It's by his sweat that he will encounter thorns and thistles. Likewise, Eve will experience tremendous pain in childbearing as she does her part in being fruitful. Filling the earth will now become a struggle. But the mandates aren't erased. They're marred, they're frustrated. But through it all, grace is retained. You know, I don't mean to hear belittle the consequences of sin. There, there are real consequences for sin. God also added to Eve, he said to her that your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. So a couple of different ways of reading that. I read it to mean that your desire will be to rule over your husband, but he will rule over you. But any way that we read it, we see that there's now a struggle 
between Adam and Eve. The, the unity, the harmony that they enjoyed in the garden is now damaged. They're going to fight against one another. There are real consequences for sin, even greater consequences than these, right? Adam and Eve will ultimately die because of sin. More about that in just a moment. But God does not curse them the way he cursed the serpent. The mandates and the potential for dominion is preserved. In fact, and I think this is really important for us to see, God makes a gracious promise of victory to mankind in the midst of all this cursing and issuing of consequences. And the promise is this, you will crush the serpent. They will crush the serpent. You see, in Genesis 3.15, God promises to establish enmity between Satan and the woman and between her offspring and his. The woman will have offspring and Satan will have offspring. But God is going to establish war between the two lines. God establishes, by his grace, a war. But the ultimate promise is for a victory for mankind through this war. He will bruise your head. Yeah, you will bruise his heel, but he'll bruise your head. I'd, I'd much rather have my heel bruised than have someone smashing my head in, right? But he, he who? You know, there's reason to believe that Eve thought Cain, Cain was the offspring that would crush Satan's head. I say this because when she gives birth to him, she says, I, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. That's the next verse we, if we were to read on in, in 4.1. Not so much, right? Cain kills Abel. So God gives Adam and Eve a replacement son, Seth. And once again, she declares, God appointed for me another offspring. See, there it is, offspring. God appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Is, is Seth the one? No. Several generations would pass. You know, eventually one of Seth's descendants, Lamech, would father a man named Noah, of whom he would declare, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from our painful toil of our hands. Maybe Noah is the one who will reverse the curse and crush Satan. Actually, if anything, in those first few chapters of Genesis, it seems like, Satan is winning, doesn't it? I mean, Cain kills Abel. All of humanity is corrupted to the point that God even repents of even having made man. Even after God wipes the earth clean with a flood, man becomes godless and wants to establish a great name for himself apart from God. Seed of the serpent always seems to kill or absorb or overwhelm the seed of the woman. I mean, this, this promise is not looking very promising, is it? But God hasn't forgotten it. He never trashes his own promises. In Genesis 12, he makes another promise concerning offspring. He chooses one man, Abram, out of all the families of the earth that he scattered from Babel. And he says to him, I'll bless you. I'll make you into a great nation. And in you, that is, in your offspring, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, granted, this, this very gracious promise to mankind of victory through enmity, victory through a struggle, it's going to take a really long time to unfold. Joseph, 
Moses, David, even Solomon, right? They, all, they were all deliverers and rulers to some extent who enjoyed victory over Satan's seed, but none of them were the serpent crusher. Sin persisted. Sin even persisted in their lives. Someone still needed to come to deal that death blow to sin. Someone needs to come to defeat the serpent. But that someone must also come to be bruised. Someone will need to come to be bruised for our sins, for the sins of his people. You see, our way of dealing with sin is to justify ourselves by blaming others. But God's way of dealing with sin is to send his own son in the flesh to condemn sin in sinful man, which is what Jesus became for us, right? God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's right, Jesus takes the blame. We'd like to blame others, but Jesus takes the blame. He was pierced for our transgressions. God never justifies sin. God never makes excuses for sin, but in more glorious and even gracious fashion, God does justify sinners. By condemning sin and sinful man, which is what Jesus became for us. You see, God presented his own son as a, as a sacrifice of atonement to be received by faith. And in this way, God remains just and the justifier of the, all those who have faith in Christ Jesus. Our ways to blame others, but God's gracious way is to take the blame himself for our sin. Our way is to curse others. But God's way is ultimately to become a curse for us at the cross. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. How glorious. How gracious is God's remedy for our sin. You know, knowing that God has taken the blame and the curse for our sin upon himself and justified us through the perfect sacrifice of his son, shouldn't that motivate us? to stop justifying ourselves and blaming others? <laughs> what, are we, what are we doing when we blame others for our sins? Aren't we, first of all, doing the work of the devil by becoming an accuser? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? God's the one who justifies, right? Who's left to condemn? Hopefully not us. Jesus is the one who died for sinners. More than that, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us perfecting us. So let's not accuse one another. And, and don't justify yourself either. When we blame others, we're essentially trying to justify ourselves, but God is the one who justifies us, and God alone. If we justify ourselves, we're really nullifying the glorious and gracious work of God in Christ. To God alone be the glory, right? At the foot of the cross, every mouth is silenced and held accountable to God. For God will have the glory in Christ Jesus. Look, Satan wants to drive a wedge between us in our relationships. Just like the way he wanted to drive a wedge between Adam and Eve. God calls us to live at peace with one another. Oh, but pastor, you, you don't understand my husband. He's such a jerk, right? You don't, you don't know the half of it. My wife is impossible to live with. Listen, enmity, warfare, that was not established by God between the man and the woman. 
Sure, sin has strained our relationships. Yes, it has. But we can stand up under the curse knowing that the curse is reversed in Christ. And the love of Christ can compel us and constrain us. Husbands, how are you to love your, your wives? Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, the Lord of the church. Even children, obey your parents in the Lord. The work of Christ compels us and constrains us. God didn't curse us, per se. He cursed sin and sinful man. He cursed Jesus on our behalf. And Jesus is our peace. And our God is a God of peace because Jesus has died and gained the victory. I know the students from the Oak know this one, right? The God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet. Amen. If we hide our sin, we try and cover it up. We tend to justify ourselves by blaming and cursing others. And finally, sometimes, sadly, we just get used to our sin. We learn to live with it and we just remain mired in it. Maybe this isn't obvious from the text, but notice that at the end of the chapter that God had to drive the man out of the garden. Verse 24 says, he drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim with a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Oh, that doesn't sound like a very gracious way of dealing with us, right? God kicked us out of paradise. How's that a good and gracious act? Well, actually, I think it's a very gracious act. Look with me at verse 22. What does it say? Now everything has changed. Man's innocence has changed. Man now knows good and evil. And God says, now lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Remember, there were, there were two particular peculiar trees that were singled out in the Garden of Eden. There was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and there was the tree of life. Now the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that was off limits. But the tree of life wasn't. In fact, I'm certain that Adam and Eve ate regularly from that. Why? It's a granted life, right? They needed to eat from it in order to live. God is expelling his children from the garden and more specifically from the tree of life because now they have become sinners and he doesn't want them to eat and live forever as sinners. may seem stern that God's kicking man out of Eden, but it's not a cruel and sadistic act. It's actually a tremendous act of mercy upon the Lord. You know, I think any parent who's raised a child knows that it can be an act of mercy to say, look, I I need to take this away from you so that you don't remain living in sin. It can be an act of fatherly care to take something away or remove someone from an environment that enables them to live a life of sin and and death, eternal death. Maybe you're hearing this message and you, the Holy Spirit is convicting you of sin and you say, "I'm, I'm that child. If you find yourself trapped, you feel like you're trapped in a sin today, if you're feeding an appetite for sin by holding on to something that only intensifies your sin, 
let me encourage you to do whatever it takes to remove yourself from that which looks like it promises life, but which actually brings about death. God created us in Christ Jesus for good works, that we should walk in those. should always give thanks if we find that the Lord has stripped us of something so we can't continue to live in sin, even if it means he's saying, no longer hide from me, no longer cover up, don't make any more excuses. God expels his children because he has a more glorious and gracious plan, which he ultimately will bring at consummation. And we wait for that day. You know, the tree of life, it shows up once again at the end of scripture in Revelation 22. There the garden has become a a city, the new Jerusalem and a new heaven and new earth. And the tree of life reappears. It's growing on both sides of the river of life. It's bearing, it's yielding 12 kinds of fruit, one for each month. It says the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. In that day, there will be no more curse. And once again, there will be communion with God there. It says the lamb will be in the city and we may commune and walk with him once again. And this is one of the last words. It says, blessed are those who have washed their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by its gates. Amen. May that be true of us today as we strive and seek to put away sin and live by Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have not left us in our sins, but that you graciously deal with sin. Thank you for providing the one who dresses us in his righteousness, who's fully paid the penalty for our sins, and who now calls us to walk in newness of life. Lord, help us to rightly assess sin, to understand its seriousness by seeing the depths to which you have gone to remedy it. We thank you that you have gone to war against our adversary and that you do give us the victory in Christ Jesus. May we cling to him and not trust anything or anyone else. Lord, grant us also as a congregation and as families peace with one another, for we know that you have not called us to enmity with one another, but to love one another by the grace you've shown us. So we ask that you would soften our hearts. Hear our prayer, Lord. Be gracious to us, for we pray by faith in the name of Jesus, who we truly believe is interceding for us. In his name we pray. Amen.